Well, good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. This morning we're going to finish our time looking at the seventh and final day of the creation week as we look at our last Sabbath, Sabbath stepping stone that we've been walking across the Christian Sabbath. Well, let's begin by reading our passage together again this morning. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the only true and living God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. You may be seated. Well, we've been talking about this seventh day of creation for three weeks now. We've talked about how God blessed this day, how he set it apart and made it holy, how it was the day in which he entered into his eternal rest from his work in the six days of creation and how the Sabbath day was both an example as well as a command for mankind, for God's image bearers, an example by which they could image God working six and resting one in a command to worship their creator on this day that he set apart and made holy. And so today we're going to finish by looking at our last Sabbath stepping stone, the Christian Sabbath, and we'll do so in three points. Our first point will be its connection to the past where we will look at how the Christian Sabbath is connected to these other stepping stones that we've looked at so far. Our second point will be the change of the Sabbath day, where we are going to look at why the Christian Sabbath is not on the same day as the creation Sabbath, why the Christian Sabbath is on the first day of the week instead of on the seventh, the last day of the week. And lastly, in our third point, we're going to look at its present applications where I hope to give us a principle that will help us apply these truths to ourselves. And this principle will be a tool for us to use to answer those thorny questions that people have about the Christian Sabbath. Well, before we do this, let's go to the Lord together in prayer, asking him for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, and our Savior, who is at his right hand, the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and works among us to conform us to the image of our King and Savior. We come to you this morning asking for your help asking that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of all that your 
Father, all that your Son has accomplished for us, that you would help us to lay hold of it, that it would cause us to lift our eyes to the hills where our help comes from, where to the horizon of eternity where we are to lay up our treasures. Father, we ask most specifically that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of it. Father, we ask these things not only for ourselves and for our gathering and for our time together, but we desire these same things for our sister churches. So we lift up to you Grace Fellowship Church in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, and Goshen Baptist Church down in Wilkesboro. Father, we ask that you would be with our brothers and sisters there as well. That you would use your word to conform them, to sanctify them, to give them the mind of your son, that they too would be doers and not just hearers, that you would cause your people in these churches to be salt and light, to be people who gather together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help them, Father, to apply your word to their lives, to live according to it, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you have called us to work out their salvation with fear and trembling and to walk in those good works that our Savior has prepared for us. Father, we also think about our persecuted brothers and sisters throughout the world. Father, this morning we want to lift up our persecuted brethren in Canada just a few miles north of us in a part of the world where we generally don't seem to think of your people as being persecuted. Father, so many things are happening in our day where your people who seek to worship you and seek to obey you, where the governmental agencies seek to prevent them from doing that in particular ways and even calls preaching the truth of your word they call it to be and have caused it to be criminal in some instances and so father please grant your grace and your strength to our brethren in Canada and help us to not only lock arms with them in prayer, but to be an encouragement to them and, Father, to even learn from them if there is a day when the same types of things happen to us. Well, Father, as we have sought to please you by lifting up our brethren throughout the world, knowing that we are not the only gathering together of your people 
and asking that you would bless their times as well and that you would continue through your son the work that he promised to build his church and the gates of hell not prevail against it. Father, turn our attention now back to what you and your kind providences have put before us this morning. Help us to learn and to grow. Help us the purpose in our hearts and minds to live in obedience to your word and for your glory. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so far as we've been tracing the Sabbath through the Bible, I've used a couple of illustrations to try and help us remember what the Sabbath is as a day of rest and worship. The first week, I compared it to an old champion woodsman who took breaks to sharpen his axe, and the Sabbath helps us as God's people in a similar way. We set aside those things that weary us and distract us. We, set, we rest from our normal labors, and we focus on our king. We go to him in prayer, and we go to him to worship him, and in faith, we trust that as we do so, He sharpens our axe by his spirit for another week of labor in which he has put us in the world for. Last week, I used the illustration of a ticket that helps us to remember where we are going. And again, the Sabbath helps us in a similar way as we set aside this day and look at one side of our ticket that says, look back, and we remember what Jesus Christ has done and accomplished for us. And then we look at the other side of our ticket that says, look forward. And we look forward to that place beyond the horizon where we are laying up our treasures. We look forward to that eternal rest that is coming in the future when he returns for his bride. And that has all been well and good, but today when we come to our last stepping stone, the Christian Sabbath, we are going to have to apply these things to ourselves. It's easy to see how the Sabbath could help people in the past. It's easy to see how to look at other people's lives and see the wonderful blessings that would have come if they would have obeyed God in this area of their lives. But it's more difficult to apply these things to ourselves. Because applying it to ourselves may involve change. It may involve changing habits. It may involve changing routines. It may involve giving up things. Perhaps even good things that we enjoy and are fine the other six days of the week, but we need to set them aside on the Lord's Day for better things. Changes like this are always difficult in the beginning. They're always, they are always difficult until they become our new habits and our new routines and we enjoy the blessings that come along with them. And new things can be difficult and can often be scary. For example, when railroads were first introduced in the United States, many people had great anxieties about them. President Jackson actually received a letter from the governor of New York in 1829 that said, as you may know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled 
at the enormous speed of 15 miles per hour by engines which, in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring the livestock and frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended that people should travel at such breakneck speed. And we laugh at this because it sounds ridiculous to us. Who could be scared of 15 miles per hour? We laugh because we know through the passage of time how useful trains proved to be and the important part they played in the development of our country. But we know this because trains turned into airplanes and 18-wheelers that crisscrossed our country and have developed a supply chain that delivers our food and other basic needs. We laugh at the governor of New York because we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see the blessings that have come from what at first was a difficult change. And perhaps what we talk about today in our last point will require some changes in your life. Changes that may seem scary, awkward, perhaps even dangerous in some ways if you move beyond what God requires into legalism. Or perhaps you'll wonder if making changes at all is even really necessary. Because after all, things are pretty, going pretty well in your life. But changes concerning the Christian Sabbath, changes in how we spend the Lord's Day each week shouldn't be made because those changes prove to be like the trains of the 19th century useful. Changes shouldn't be made by Christians for pragmatic reasons, but only because it is what our king requires of us. And if our king requires it of us, then it does not matter if it's useful or not. We obey because we trust and we love the one who has redeemed us, and we trust that he only commands those things that are for our good and for his glory. And so as we are looking at our last stepping stone today, may the Lord help us to see these truths, may he help us as we seek to apply them to our lives, may he help us as we seek to live lives in a manner that is pleasing to him. Well, let's begin by looking at the Christian's Sabbath connection to the past in our first point. So what is the Christian Sabbath? What is the Lord's Day, or what is what the Puritans called the market day of the soul? Simply put, it is the day that God commands his people to rest from their normal labors, to gather together in order to worship their creator and redeemer, and to spend the entire day remembering what he has accomplished in the past, and because of what he has accomplished in the past, looking forward to what is coming in the future. In this way, the Christian Sabbath is a weekly reminder that because of our Savior's life, death, and resurrection, we will one day enjoy what Adam fell short of at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We will one day receive the fullness of the inheritance that Jesus has purchased 
for us. We will one day get to enter into that eternal Sabbath rest that God entered into in the seventh day of creation. Now that should sound very familiar to your ears, and it should sound very familiar because it's connected to everything that we've talked about for the last two weeks. Number one, God has always required his image bearers to worship him. From the very beginning, it is moral law. It is the law of nature stamped on every image bearer. It is inescapable that creatures must worship their creator. Number two, God set aside the seventh day, as we can read in our passage, and he made it holy in order to set apart a special day for his image bearers to rest from their labors of the other six days, to set those aside and worship him as their creator. And number three, in creating in six days and resting on the, set, on the seventh, God set a pattern for his image bearers in the beginning. God didn't need to take six days to create. And God doesn't get tired. He didn't need a day of rest. The Sabbath was made for man. God set a pattern for his image bearers in the beginning. And what we are looking at today is that this pattern has not ended with the coming of Christ. It continues this day. It continues on this very Lord's Day where we have all set aside this day to rest from our normal labors and we have gathered together to worship. And this pattern will not end until Christ returns. And in this way, the Christian Sabbath is organically connected to the creation Sabbath that we read about in Genesis 2. And just like the other themes that we've talked about in Genesis 1, the hope of entering into God's never-ending rest finds its fulfillment in the person and in the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we can already see an organic connection to our other Sabbath stepping stones, but to go a little bit, little bit deeper, let's add a little meat to this bone. Beginning in the Garden of Eden, before the fall of mankind and the sin and misery, the creation Sabbath on the seventh day was held out to Adam as a promise. A promise that he too could enter into God's eternal rest if he succeeded in passing his period of probation, period of probation where he was forbidden from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he and his helper were to labor and to work to multiply and fill the earth with holy image bearers and subdue it. But we know that Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God that was held out to him. And because of his failure, he plunged all mankind into sin and misery into spiritual death. But our God, who is rich in mercy, promised in Genesis 3 after the fall to bring about an offspring of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent of old, Satan who would conquer him and defeat his work. And so from Adam to Moses, this promise of eternal Sabbath rest is remembered and clung to by those 
who believed God's promise of Genesis 3.15 by faith. And so from Adam to Moses, these people who had faith in God's promise, these people who wanted to worship their creator and their redeemer would set aside time to rest from their labors and to worship him as they waited for that promise of Genesis 3.15 to be fulfilled. And in this way, in resting and worshiping their creator as they awaited the fulfillment of the promise that would enable them to enter into eternal Sabbath rest that Adam was promised but fell short of, in this way, the Sabbath of the creator on the seventh day is organically connected before and after the fall of mankind into sin and misery. And so as God was working this promise out and bringing it to fruition throughout history, as he was providentially guiding this promise along and carrying it along to its fulfillment, when God brought about the great deliverance and redemption of the Old Testament in the Exodus event, this promise of Sabbath rest did not disappear. Moses was not able to give the people of Israel this rest promised in the Garden of Eden. Moses did not fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15. This promise remained and was still awaiting fulfillment. But because Israel was part of God's providential plan to guide this promise to fulfillment, now the remembrance of this promise becomes part of the covenant that God made with Israel, what we call the Mosaic Covenant. And we know that this promise of entering into God's eternal Sabbath rest isn't even fulfilled when Israel enters into the promised land. Because Hebrews 4 also instructs us that Joshua, who led the people of Israel into the promised land, did not and was not able to give them the rest that is pictured in Genesis 2. But we can also see this because we know that Israel like Adam, failed to remain in the promised land and were eventually exiled from it, just like Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. But again, our God, who is rich in mercy and who always keeps his promises, our God sent his one and only son, a second Adam, who unlike Moses and Joshua, Jesus actually accomplished for his people the rest that Adam failed to attain to. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus did not sin, he did not fall short of the, or of the glory of God, but he obtained that eternal Sabbath rest for everyone who has ever believed in the promises of God from the creation of the world until our Savior returns and consummates and brings with him the new creation. So to put it in the words of Shai Lin, from Adam to Christ, they receive the promise on credit. From Christ first until his second coming, we receive it on debit. And so now the Christian Sabbath is organically connected to the Sabbath before the fall from Adam from Moses and from Moses to Christ in that there still remains for us more rest. We are still awaiting more rest 
in the future. And because there's still more to come in the future when Christ returns and we are all perfected together, as long as that is still in the future, there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God now. As we continue to remember the redemption that has been accomplished for us in the past and we rest in hope of that eternal Sabbath rest that Christ has purchased for us and is going to bring in its fullness at his second coming. And it is this organic connection that finds its foundation not in the old covenant of Moses, because that has passed away. The Christian Sabbath doesn't find its organic connection to the Mosaic covenant, but the Christian Sabbath finds its foundation and its organic connection in Genesis 2, in our passage this morning, and the seventh day of creation and the promise of eternal rest there. And beloved, this is the reason why you, as followers of Christ, are still to observe Sabbath. Because it is always pictured that eternal rest that was lost in the garden but would be gained by the promised offspring, by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as long as Christians are still waiting on the resurrection, as long as we are still waiting on that more rest to come, where what has been sown corruptible will be raised incorruptible, as long as we are still waiting on that day where sin and death will be no more, and where for all eternity we will live sinless lives and we will enjoy the immediate presence of God as he dwells with us and our faith is made sight and we rest forever from the work he has given us to do here in the old creation. Brothers and sisters, though that promise has already been secured for us, until we receive it in its fullness, until we gain that inheritance that Christ has purchased for us, Until we receive it in its full consummation, there still remains a day that we are to set aside to worship God and remember what he's done for us and what is coming in the future. And so that is the organic connection between all of these Sabbath stepping stones that we've been going through over the last three weeks. So now that we've seen the organic connection, let's look in our second point at the change of day from the seventh day Sabbath to the first day of the week Sabbath. Well, since we've talked so much about the organic connection between the seventh day of creation and the Sabbath throughout the scriptures, it may be puzzling as to why the Christian Sabbath is on the first day of the week instead of the seventh day. If from Adam to Moses and from Moses to Christ, the holy day of rest and worship is the seventh day, and the Christian Sabbath has an organic connection to these things, to all of that redemptive history, then why do we not rest and worship on the seventh day? This question requires us to remember what we've said many times as we've been talking about the Sabbath in Genesis 2. The Sabbath was a day in which God entered into his eternal rest from his work of creation, the old creation. And this eternal rest was the goal of mankind from the beginning. So if there was going to be some kind of change 
that relates to this creation rest than nothing short of a new creation, of a work of new creation, nothing short of that would do to justify a change. And this is exactly what we have in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. To put it briefly in picture form in your mind, when Jesus, what, when Jesus accomplished redemption, when he accomplished our eternal rest on the cross, when he said, it is finished, when he finished his work of redemption and rested in the grave during the seventh day Sabbath of the old creation, he left the old creation and its Sabbath in the grave and rose on the first day of the week, inaugurating a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, and establishing a new day of remembrance for the people of God. A new day, not one like Adam, based on probation, but one in Christ, based on confirmation, something accomplished, something finished, something perfected. Jesus has accomplished Sabbath rest for his people. And now, as his people, the picture that we have is not working six and then resting one after we've completed our work in order to get to the rest, but now, because of what has been accomplished by our king, we rest in his finished work first. And then, out of what he has accomplished, we continue our labors, we move into our work of six, while we are waiting for him to return and take us into that eternal rest that never ends that he's accomplished for us. So do you see this picture, beloved? From Adam to Christ, the picture was work. And then you get your rest. But since Christ rose from the grave, inaugurating a new creation, the picture has always been eternal rest has been accomplished. It is finished. It has been achieved. Now work out of that accomplished rest until you inherit it. For eternity. Our confession of faith says it this way in chapter 22, paragraph 7. As it is the law of nature, that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by his word in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day, and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Now, in light of these truths of this theme that we've talked about, of these stepping stones that we've walked across, in light of these things, we can now look at the practice that we see in the New Testament of the apostles and the churches and see the significance of their practice of meeting on the first day of the week 
as a Sabbath, a holy day to Christ in the new creation. And this practice began almost immediately. It often goes unnoticed. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, because Pentecost was to be celebrated on a 50th day, following seven Sabbaths. So Pentecost was on the first day of the week. Ironically, today is actually the 50th day following the resurrection of Christ. So some traditions are, are, are remembering Pentecost today. And in Acts 2, you have the great fulfillment at Pentecost of the Old Testament prophecy of the, old, of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And after Peter preaches his sermon, and people come to repentance and faith in Christ, we read, that they, we read about what they immediately do on this first day of the week in verse 42, which says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Upon being saved, these people devoted themselves on the first day of the week to what we would call the ministry of the word, to fellowship, to communion, and to praying. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we read, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. He prolonged his speech until midnight. And now we generally think of Acts 20, this account there of Eutychus falling from the window and being raised but notice that it is emphasized that they were gathered on the first day of the week to hear apostolic teaching, to break bread together, which is more than likely a reference to partaking of the Lord's Supper together. Also, in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church. Church being another word for assembly of Christ's people. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian assembly and we hear in verse 1 that he also told these same things to the Galatian assembly. And in verse 2, he tells them that on the first day of every week, the churches assemble. As they do this, on the first day of every week, they are to set aside some money when they come together. And they did it again on the first day of the week. And now what follows from all of this and other things that we see in the New Testament, such as the Apostle John being in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, what follows all of this in the history of the church is something that we need to recognize. From the time of the apostles in the early church in the post-apostolic era, what emerges in the early history of the church after the apostles had labored among them and what we see even after the apostles died, what emerges is the nearly universal practice of Christians gathering to worship on the first day of the week and calling it the Lord's Day. And we must remember as we think about that and the significance of it, 
Some of that significance is found in the fact that the apostles were Jews. And the early church was birthed out of a Jewish context. And so with all of the controversies in the early church over Jewish regulations and traditions and laws, it is remarkable that the one thing that wasn't controversial was the change of day of worship. From the seventh day Sabbath to a first day Lord's Day. It is obvious that these new churches, these new Christians saw a new Sabbath for the people of God, a new time for them to gather and worship a Christian Sabbath. And so having looked at its connection to the past, having looked at the change of day, let's now turn to our last point this morning and see how close to the corn we can hoe and consider its present applications. Now, one of the things that I've tried to emphasize as we've been looking at the Sabbath these last three weeks is that it is rooted in all that is entailed in the seventh day of creation and not in the Mosaic Covenant. And I say this again because it's really important because the Mosaic Covenant has passed away. And so if what we think about the Sabbath were to be rooted in the Old Covenant, then obviously there would be no present applications for us because our confession of faith teaches us in chapter 19 that all judicial and ceremonial laws in Israel passed away together with that state in the coming of Christ. And we looked at that last week in Galatians 3 when we saw where it says the Mosaic Covenant from the very beginning of it was temporary in nature. It was only until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, namely Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews couldn't be any more explicit about this than he is in chapter 8 of Hebrews when after quoting Jeremiah's prophecy of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, he says of the Mosaic Covenant, in speaking of a new covenant he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we've taken great time to show that the Sabbath is rooted in creation. In the picture of Genesis 2, where God enters into his eternal rest after completing his work of creation. And this picture is the example and the promise For his image bears that after completing the work that God gives to them, if they obey, they too will enter into eternal Sabbath rest. So to rehash it again very briefly, Adam sinned, Adam fell short of this glorious eternal Sabbath rest, but God made a promise of a seed of a woman, an offspring who we later know would also be an offspring of Abraham, who would come and would secure what Adam failed to attain for any and everyone who would believe in the promises, for any and everyone who would repent of their sins and trust in the perfect life and substitutionary death of this promised offspring to come. And this our Savior Jesus Christ did. And God showed that he accepted what Jesus Christ did in his life and death by raising him from the grave on the first day of the week the third day, thus securing the promise of eternal Sabbath rest. And in this way, Jesus is our Sabbath rest because by faith in him, in his life, and in his death, we have rested from the works 
that are given to earn eternal life. We do not pursue righteousness by works, but we pursue it by faith alone. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the message of the end of Romans 9 and that we looked at. This is the message of Hebrews chapter 4. And with all of that being said, the reality of our lives, the reality that we are living in right now as you sit there and listen, and the message of the New Testament is that we are still awaiting something. We are still waiting for something. We are still in the old creation. We are citizens of a new creation, but we are still waiting for something here in the old creation. We are awaiting the second coming of Christ so that what we have already received as inheritance, we can receive in its fullness and enjoy that eternal rest. We are eagerly awaiting for that glorious day, but for now, we have remaining work to do as wilderness people as pilgrims awaiting our entrance into the promised land. We do not have work to do in order to earn that eternal rest, but as our king and as our husband's bride and helper, we have work to do by continuing the ministry of our king and our husband, our savior, to seek and save that which is lost. And so just as it has been since the Garden of Eden, as it says in Hebrews 4.9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now the word for Sabbath in Hebrews 4.9 is sabbatismos. And if you look it up in the original Greek, you will find that it carries with it a meaning of Sabbath observance or Sabbath keeping. So what I'm saying is that while we are waiting on our inheritance, there remains a Sabbath keeping for us, for the people of God, to remember what has been accomplished in the past and to look forward to what is coming in the future. So hopefully by now you can see why this is important. Because just as Jesus Christ is our righteousness and he fulfilled the whole law for us, there is nothing in the law for us to fulfill. Christ is our righteousness. Just as that does not mean that we don't have to obey what he commands us, so too, just as Jesus has secured our eternal Sabbath rest and in him we rest from our works of seeking to gain that eternal Sabbath rest for ourselves, this does not mean that while we wait to receive it, that we don't keep Sabbath. For while we wait, God has given us one day in seven and required us to keep, to keep it holy to him that just as it has been true for the people of God of all time, we would look back on what has been accomplished and look forward to what is to come. So what does that mean? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for us at the gathering church? How do we, how do we cash that out? Let me begin by putting in the words of our confession in chapter 22, paragraph 8. Paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises 
of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Now, after hearing me reading that and hearing the doctrine of this church, I know that the questions about the Christian Sabbath come, and they are always, well, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? Can I do this? Can I not do that? And as we are looking at present applications of the Christian Sabbath to us, I want to first say that all of those questions are not where we should begin. All of those questions are where we end. But as followers of Christ, we should not begin thinking about this issue by asking, does it mean I can or can't do this, that, or the other thing? Rather, we should begin by asking the fundamental question, does God command this of me? And the doctrine of this church, regardless of of how you personally think about that, you need to have it clear in your minds that the doctrine of this church is a decided yes answer to that question, does God command it of you? So having asked and answered that foundational question, we then move to practical questions. We should always work from foundational principles to the practical questions and not the other way around. As we think about these things, we should take a sober look in the mirror and ask ourselves this question. What does it mean? What does it say about my heart? If the first question I ask about the Sabbath are questions of burden, can I do this? Do I need to stop that? Can I do the other thing? What does that say about how I am going before the Lord as I'm seeking wisdom and a clear conscience before him about this question? Let me first encourage let me rather encourage you to first consider this practical question. What would it mean For your spiritual growth, what would it mean for your growth in Christ-likeness, for your own personal holiness, for your own sanctification, and what would it mean for your brothers and sisters in Christ if we all set aside one day in seven and spent the entire day looking back and reflecting on what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, and looking forward what that meant for the future. What would it mean if we spent one whole day in seven laying aside and resting from our normal work and setting aside our normal recreational activities and focused completely on worshiping God, on seeking to commune with Him and reading His Word and spending time communing with Him in, in prayer on contemplating what He's done for us and what that means for us in the future and how that should help us think about this upcoming week of labor that we're getting ready to enter into. Think about what it would mean for you personally, what it would mean for your family if this is what you did on the Lord's Day together. Think about what it would mean for your brothers and sisters in Christ here at the Gathering Church if we did the same. We set aside one whole day in seven to worship our creator and to think about his things. And to put aside things that distract us from that. Would it not mean growth and holiness? Would it not mean growth and being more like Christ? 
being conformed to his image, it would. And in this way, thinking about the Sabbath command in this way, thinking about being more like Christ means that the Sabbath command is our joy. It's not our burden, it's our joy to become more like Christ and to be able to set aside time to think about Him and to contemplate Him and to commune with Him and to look at what He's done for us on the cross and what that means for our future. What a joy it is to have our God direct us and liberate us from all the craziness of the world to set aside a day to contemplate and commune with Him in a special way. To think of it in this way and not as our burden helps us to answer other practical questions. Because when we ask, what about this, what about that, what about the other thing, instead of trying to come up with an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts and looking for every possible exception to them, we now have a principle. And we are now asking the question, is this, that, or the other thing helping me love God more? Is it helping me focus on Him more? Is it helping me think about what He has done for me more? Is it helping me think about what's to come more? Or is it distracting me from that blessing that God commands me to partake of on the Lord's day? And it helps us answer questions related also to loving our neighbors. Because when we think about things that we do that impact others, we move from asking, is this permissible, to asking the question, does this, that, or the other thing help my neighbor love God more? Does it help them obey Him? Does it help them focus on Him? Or is what I am going to do, is it going to distract my neighbor from the blessings that God commands concerning the Lord day? And beloved, this requires wisdom, it requires thoughtfulness, and it requires that as we think about these things, the beginning of our knowledge about these things be the fear of the Lord, and not whether it's going to take something from me that I hold dear. It requires us to dive into the scriptures in order to have have and determine whether or not we can have a clear conscience about this, that, or the other thing. It requires us to consider our neighbors and their good and to think about whether my actions are going to help them or be a hindrance to them. That's a lot of stuff to think about. If only the Lord had given us a day where we could set aside everything else and focus our attention on such things. Beloved, as we consider these things and think about our neighbors as well as ourselves, this also brings into view the idea of the works of necessity and mercy. And so as you consider this and other issues surrounding the Lord's Day, issues that are outside our gathered time of worship, remember that our King has instructed us by His life that works of necessity and mercy are not just permissible on the Sabbath, but they are good. They are not violations of obeying Sabbath. They are not exceptions to the rule, but works of necessity and mercy are part of obeying the Sabbath. We can see this in his own ministry in the Gospels. As in all things, we are 
to follow him. And so now, having laid this foundational principle and given a couple of fundamental questions for us to ask ourselves when we think about these practical applications, let me finish by giving one concrete application. We are commanded in Hebrews 10.25 to not neglect the gathering together of God's people. And we do that on the first day of every week known as the Lord's Day. Beloved, gathering together with brothers and sisters in Christ to worship Him, and to find rest in Him and to be ministered to Him or be ministered to by Him is a command of our Savior. It is not optional. Do not let any misgivings or lack of understanding about how to apply other Sabbath issues to area, other areas in your life keep you from obeying in this area. Put most simply and most directly, if you are not hindered by God's providence in your life, then it is a sin for you to not go to church and gather with God's people. It is a sin to choose willfully to do other things instead of this thing God has commanded. Whether that's because you're tired and you want to sleep in, or it's because you want to enjoy a beautiful Sunday like we have today, enjoying a hike or canoeing the new, or going and getting early to a Panthers game, or going on vacation, or taking your kids to sporting activities, it is a sin to not gather together with God's people to worship Him on the Lord's day. When it is your willful decision to do something else instead. Now that's not to say that you have to do it here in West Jefferson. That's not to say you have to do it in the morning. That's not to say you have to do it here at the gathering church, but it is to say that you must order your lives and your trips and your vacations, your priorities, such that you are gathering together with Christ's people somewhere in the world on the Lord's day, unless, unless you are providentially kept from doing so by sickness, by tragedy, or some other serious providential circumstance out of your control. Well, as we close our time together and prepare to enter into a time of prayer and reflection on these things, obviously that was just one of a thousand possible questions that could be asked. It's only one of a thousand possible scenarios that we could think about Beloved, as you enter into that, perhaps this is a new idea, a new thought for you. As you enter into that, you need to understand that your king has given you three pastors that love you and that want to help you and that want to oversee your soul, that you would be pleasing to your Savior. Your king has given you three pastors to help you think through various scenarios so that you would live a life pleasing to your king, and that you would do so with a clear conscience. So I know that there is so much more that could be said, and I know that there are more questions to be answered about these things, and as you think about these questions, I plead with you 
as one of your overseers, as one of your pastors, I plead with you to think about them not as a list of do's and don'ts, but from the foundational perspective of having a clear conscience before your creator, before your redeemer. And knowing the fear of the Lord, going before him, and honestly asking him, does this, that, or the other thing that I enjoy, does it help me? Does it help my neighbor remember what has been accomplished and look forward to my eternal inheritance? Or does this, that, or the other thing distract me or my neighbor? Does it neglect, cause me to neglect those things? And so as you pray and reflect on what we've talked about, I hope that you will focus on the joy that the Sabbath represents and not look at it as a burdensome command. For how can it be a burden to be commanded to organize our lives such that we spend a whole day remembering what Christ has done for us and what that means for our future? Beloved, the Sabbath is not a burden, it is a privilege. And we get to gather together and we get to remember the eternal rest that our Savior has purchased for us. We get to remember that He is going to see to it that we inherit it. That it's a guarantee we work out of that rest knowing He has accomplished accomplished it. It is finished. His words prove true indeed to us, beloved. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We thank you for all that you instruct us in your word. We ask that you would help us in these ways to have a clear conscience before you but a conscience that is informed according to your word and not just according to the ways in which we've done things in the past or according to other pragmatic reasons. Father, we know that unless you do this work in us by your spirit, that we will continue to not make this day holy, Father, I ask that you would forgive me personally for the ways in which, as I've been studying this issue, for the ways in which I see in my own life that I do things that distract me and distract my family and distract my brothers and sisters from remembering what your Son has accomplished for us and for what's coming in the future. Father, I ask that you would help us all to take a sober look in the mirror as we consider these things. We would have a clear conscience before you, a rightly informed one according to your word. O great God of highest heaven, 
Help us. And we ask for your help in confidence that you are our Father, ready and able to give these good gifts that we ask of from you. And so we ask them in faith, in Jesus' name, amen.